This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, sexual activity, drug, and alcohol use by teenagers, violent and disturbing imagery, and discussions of emotional and psychological trauma. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 306. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 47 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Six months have passed since Danny and Fiona made the decision to enter psychic therapy. For Danny, the decision to enter treatment was an attempt to find balance between her new female persona and her original Daniel persona. Taking the Androgyne curse split Daniel and Danny into two different souls inhabiting the same body, and the soul-shaping powers of Jared Tamlin caused those two identities to diverge much more strongly than they ever would have normally. As a result, Daniel's memories don't feel like they belong to Danny anymore, and that's left her feeling like a shell of a person. Normally, when an androgyne is heavily bifurcated in this way, they were given the curse early in childhood, so both the male and female personas have an entire lifetime of memories to draw on. The collective psi therapists have agreed to try to replicate this experience for Danny by telepathically regressing her to younger ages and then letting her live out pivotal moments in her childhood in a virtual environment. When she comes out of each session, Danny will remember that these experiences are fictional, but they will still allow her to experience a gradual development of self that is distinct from Daniel. Hopefully, that will allow her to coexist with Daniel as a distinct person in her own right. For Fiona, the goals of psi therapy are not about constructing her past, but rather uncovering it. She remembers very little of her childhood before she came to the collective, and recent events have made it clear that there is a deep-seated trauma in her past that she has suppressed from her conscious memory. Sasha tried to uncover that hidden memory before, but she triggered a defense mechanism in Fiona's mind that very nearly killed her. Whatever is down there, it's been sabotaging Fiona's relationships and causing her to lash out at the people she loves, especially when she fears that she might become helpless. For the sake of her family and their future together, Fiona is determined to uncover the truth about her own past. (music) 
Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 47 You sure you want to do this, Bex? Rebecca smiled tentatively at Danny. Sure. I mean, don't you? You helped to plan all of this. I know, I know. I guess I'm just nervous. Trace is so... She spread her hands on either side of her face as she opened her mouth in a silent wow. I mean, what if he doesn't want to? Rebecca grinned. From what I hear, that's not likely. And anyway, have you looked in the mirror lately? You're pretty hot stuff yourself these days. Danny blushed and fiddled with the collar of her blouse. Okay. Okay, let's do it. Summoning up all the courage they could muster, Danny and Rebecca left their dorm room and snuck down the hallway with their shoes in their hands, alert for the sound of approaching footsteps. They crept past the lift and the guard station in front of it, then entered the stairwell at the end of the hall. They snuck down to the next floor, where the boys' dorms were located, and made their way to Trace's room. At the door, Danny paused and took Becca's hand. Is he in there? Rebecca closed her eyes and nodded. I'll call him. Just a sec. Danny fidgeted while the seconds ticked by, very much aware that they were not supposed to be here. But it was Becca's sixteenth birthday, darn it, and this was how she wanted to celebrate. Danny wasn't about to abandon her best friend in the whole world, even if she was almost as scared as she was excited. The door opened a little, and Trace looked down at them. He was wearing only his boxers, and his taut, muscular chest and abs looked like polished ebony in the dim light of the hall. He sported a knowing grin. "'Now how can I help you two lovely ladies?' He spoke audibly, in a low and sultry tone that suggested that he knew exactly how he could help them. It was risky, talking out loud, but it let him use that damned sexy voice of his. Danny felt her stomach give a little flip-flop just at the sound of it. Here goes everything, she thought. Danny and Becca struck a sultry pose, trying to mimic the women in the adult magazines. Danny put a finger to her lips, then reached out and lightly touched Trace's chest, initiating a telepathic link. Hey, Trace, she purred. It's Becca's birthday today, and we're going to have a little party to celebrate. She wrapped her arms suggestively around Rebecca. Bex got up on tiptoe and nibbled playfully on Danny's ear. Want to join us? Several emotions flickered swiftly through Trace's mind. Surprise, Danny noted, was not among them. Somehow that total self-confidence made her want him even more. Well, that sounds like a lovely idea, Trace said, switching to telepathy. Where is this little party supposed to happen? Rebecca grinned. Danny found an empty office a few floors down. We've been getting it decorated for the occasion. Trace smirked. So that's the little problem Dell's been helping you with. He's been so nervous the last few days I thought his tail was going to get stuck between his legs. Yeah, Dell's been great, Danny said, sending her thoughts a little faster than usual. Look, are you coming? 
I don't want to get caught down here. Trace's eyes twinkled. Just let me put something on. He looked down at Rebecca's slinky dress and Danny's designer jeans and low-cut blouse. I think I'm a little underdressed for this party. He stepped back from Danny's finger, breaking the link, and shut the door. Oh, baby, Rebecca murmured. You're going to be more underdressed than that when we're done with you. Danny shushed her with a look. She wasn't sure why she was so on edge. Well, other than the fear of getting caught. But her emotions seemed to be tangling themselves in ever more complicated knots. She and Rebecca had been fantasizing about Trace for months, but now that they were actually going to do something about it... Ready, Trace said, opening the door and slipping out into the hall. He was dressed in a scarlet-red button-down shirt and khakis, and had a backpack slung over one shoulder. Lead the way, Danny. Danny did so, taking them down to the basement of the Westfall campus. They wove their way through stacks of boxes and crates, some of them covered by decades' worth of dust, until at last they came to a steel door, propped open with a piece of plywood. Don't let the door latch, Danny warned them as she slipped through into the stairwell beyond. It'll lock automatically, and it took forever for Dell to get it open last time. Trace nodded assent and put the piece of wood carefully back into place as he joined the two girls on the landing. The stairs were narrow and steep, lit only by small blue electroluminescent panels along the walls. Watch your step, Danny said. What do you think these stairs are for? Becca wondered. We already have escape exits, and they aren't hidden in the corner of the basement. If you tried to run down these stairs, you'd probably kill yourself. Danny shrugged. Probably some kind of maintenance shaft for electronics or plumbing or whatever. She pointed to the locked access panels that lined the walls. These towers are so big they must have dozens of little hidden passages like this. Pretty brave of you to come exploring down here by yourself, Trace said. What if you'd gotten hurt? Danny turned around and stuck her tongue out at him. I can take care of myself. Psychic healing, remember? Trace chuckled and raised a hand, conceding the point. All right. So where is this little hideaway? Danny stopped at the next landing and pushed open another door, which had likewise been propped open. Right this way, she said, gesturing grandly at the room beyond. It was only a vacant office space, the faint smell of drywall dust still hung in the air, and the walls were unpainted but the floor-to-ceiling windows offered a great view of the city beyond. Danny directed them to a cluster of sleeping bags, pillows, and beanbag chairs near the windows. A few feet away sat a small cooler and a portable stereo. Pretty nice, Trace said, flopping back into one of the beanbags. Isn't it, though? Becca agreed. She sprawled out on the sleeping bags and tucked a pillow under her chest which had the added benefit of displaying her cleavage for Trace's approval. Danny took a sidelong look at him and decided that he approved quite a lot. Danny went over to the stereo and started it playing, something soft and sultry that Rebecca had picked out. She opened the cooler and pulled out three of their hard-won bottles of beer. Here you go, Bex, she said, handing her a bottle. Your first taste of the world of grown-ups. 
Happy birthday. Trace took the second bottle and smirked as he twisted off the cap. Dill got this for you? Danny nodded as she opened her own bottle. Yeah, have you had it before? Trace's eyes twinkled as he took a sip. He looked down at Rebecca, his expression curious and expectant. Rebecca looked at him, then over at Danny. Well, here it goes, she murmured, then raised the bottle to her lips and drank. Immediately her face puckered, and she nearly spat it out. Danny giggled as Becca forced it down. Gods, Becca said, her voice tight with disgust. People drink this? Trace boomed a laugh. Yes, but not usually for their first beer. Rukilia Pale Ale is a little intense for beginners. Too much hops. Rebecca took another slight sip, as if to convince herself that it wasn't as bad as she first thought. She didn't look convinced. I don't think you could pay me to drink this. Danny took a sip of her beer and grimaced. I think I agree with you, she said, setting it down. Trace grinned and took a long swig from his bottle. More for me, then. Glad somebody's going to get some use out of it, Danny said sourly. Blast it, I bet Dell did that on purpose. You'll have to have a talk with him about that, Becca said. No, I... Danny froze. Her eyes widened, and her jaw snapped shut. Danny? Becca asked, sounding puzzled. What is it? Danny shook her head, trying to clear it. She'd been about to say, No, I can't, because Dell's dead. But why would she have thought that? Dell was upstairs right now, probably asleep in his room. She'd seen him just a few hours ago. He wasn't dead. So why did that feel like a lie? Trace's strong, gentle hands touched her shoulders from behind. She leaned back into him without thinking about it. What's the matter, Danny? She took a deep breath and shook her head. Nothing. Sorry, just spaced out for a minute there. She stepped away from Trace, out from under his hands. I'm going to try a cab. Anyone else want a cab? She grabbed the little bag next to the cooler, pulling out a lighter and a pack of cannabis cigarettes. She pulled one out with cold, trembling fingers and held up the pack in front of her. See? This is supposed to be the good stuff. Supposed to mellow you out. Anybody? Bex? Oh God, I'm babbling. Why am I babbling? Rebecca was on her feet now, too, the plan forgotten. She and Trace were slowly coming toward her now, sadness and concern in their eyes. Danny, Rebecca said, hesitantly. What? I'm fine, Danny insisted, hating the way her voice quavered as she spoke. I'm just a little nervous, that's all. Just need something to relax. She thrust the pack of cabs toward Becca. This was your idea, too. Sex, drugs, and booze, right? Good girl Becca's one little night to rebel. I'm just along for the ride. Don't look at me like that! This isn't you, Danny, Trace said quietly. How do you know? Danny demanded, her eyes filling with frantic tears. How do you know it isn't me? Maybe I want to get high and let you bang me till I can't see straight. 
Maybe I want to watch you do it to Rebecca, to see the look on her face when you fill her up inside. How do you know that's not what I want? Trace caught her hands in his, gently trapping them and taking away the cigarettes. Because you know it, he said softly. Rebecca put a hand on Danny's arm. It's okay, Dee. Really, it is. You're just not ready. Danny sniffed. But I want to be ready, she protested, half-heartedly. I don't know what's wrong with me. Trace, when I saw you come out without your shirt, I thought I was going to cream my pants right there. But now I'm freaking out, and I don't even know why. Hey, come here, girl. Trace opened his arms, offering a hug. Danny accepted, pressing herself up against the soft red fabric of his shirt. You don't have to explain anything. The right time is when you say it is, and it's okay to change your mind. She sniffed again. I don't suppose I could ask for a rain check? He chuckled. Sure, I'll be here when you're ready. No, you won't. The thought struck Danny out of nowhere. Her eye snapped open. Trace's chest was still red, but the shirt was gone, and it was blood that covered him now, bright red blood that was too red to be real. It crawled off his skin and onto her, covering her hands, marking her, staining her. Guilty. And now she could see the bullet hole where Trace's eye used to be, and there was Dell on the floor with his blood-soaked fur, and it was wrong. It was all wrong. No! Danny shrieked, her whole body going rigid. She stared around wildly, taking in the soft white room, the hospital bed, the lines of whirring equipment. She ripped the spelljack off her head and threw it to the floor, her hands shaking. Memories came flooding back as the psytherapist released the block that had regressed her to age 16. They'd been doing these sessions for months, slowly building up her simulated childhood. But this? This was definitely not in the brochure. The door opened, and the psytherapist, Dr. Julian, came inside. Her eyes were wide, and her expression troubled. Danny, are you all right? What the fuck was that? Danny demanded. Do you remember where you are? Yes, I'm all here, Danny snapped. What the fuck was that? Dr. Julian gestured helplessly. Some kind of leakage around the mind block. A piece of your current memories got into the simulation and contaminated it. No fucking shit. Please understand, this is extremely rare, the doctor said, her tone pleading. The emotions attached to a memory have to be incredibly intense and personal for it to break through like that. There was nothing in your profile to suggest that you and Mr. Umbara had ever been intimate in that way. Danny scoffed. Daniel and Trace weren't lovers, Doc. Gods, Trace was probably the most hetero man who ever lived. She crossed her arms. He was my friend, and he was murdered. Less than six months ago. Didn't it occur to you that that might cause some intense feelings? Grief for a friend can be intense, yes, Dr. Julian admitted. And we thought we'd accounted for that. But the level of pain you're experiencing is far beyond the norm. It's as if you actually witnessed Mr. Umbara's death, 
up close and personal. But you weren't anywhere near the skyport that day, were you? Danny swallowed and looked away. No, she murmured. Please, Eli, don't let her read my mind. Fortunately, Dr. Julian appeared to be caught up in her own defense. And you don't have any sort of ESP, so you couldn't have witnessed it that way. She shrugged helplessly. The only thing I can think of is that you're carrying around some kind of repressed guilt for something you did to Mr. Umbara, something you never got a chance to make right. Can you think of anything like that? Anything that might be keeping you from having closure about his death? Danny shook her head, not trusting her voice. Don't think, don't think, don't think. Dr. Julian sighed. Well, if anything comes to you, let me know. Or tell a priest about it or something. She touched Danny's hand, her eyes sincerely apologetic. I'm sorry. If we had known, we would never have included Mr. Umbara in the simulation. Danny glared at her. You know, unexpected grief aside, that's a pretty fucked up thing to do to somebody. What, losing a friend isn't painful enough? You want me to lose a lover, too? It wasn't my idea, Dr. Julian said wearily, rubbing her eyes. Your previous choices in the simulations indicated that you found Mr. Umbara attractive. Your Daniel persona doesn't have the life experiences to provide context for your new bisexuality, so we needed to give you the opportunity to explore that. Daniel's first sexual encounter with Ms. Brower was a useful template for the situation. All right, fine, but why Trace? Why not Brian? The doctor shrugged. Your teenaged mind wasn't attracted to Brian. If we tried to force you into a simulation your mind wouldn't accept, the results could have been disastrous. Danny raised an eyebrow. All right, more disastrous, Julian said, blushing. The whole point of this treatment is to let you be you, whoever you turn out to be. Your rational mind, here and now, says that you should be attracted to Brian because that benefits you in the long run. But teenage hormones don't mix well with that kind of pragmatism. Danny sighed. Don't I know it. Pragmatism has never been my strong suit. Dr. Julian gave her a sympathetic smile. We're done for today. I need to confer with my team and determine the best way to go forward from here. Your teenage sexuality is going to have to be fleshed out, but we'll try to come up with something that isn't traumatic. She grimaced. Or no more traumatic than young love normally is. Danny nodded heavily, getting to her feet. That's all right, Doc. I think it's going to be a while before I'm ready to let you back in my head anyway. She grabbed her purse from a nearby chair and headed for the door. I hope, she thought, that Fiona's therapy is going better than mine. You're getting close, love. Sasha said. Fiona didn't open her eyes, but she let out an exasperated sigh. It doesn't feel like it. No, really, Sasha said encouragingly. The new visualization approach is working really well. Fiona had to concede that, at least. She had always seen her mind as a vast ocean, churning emotions and memories held back by walls of control. Sasha had suggested a new metaphor might be in order, 
They now envisioned her memories as a path through a forest, which seemed to be more productive for getting to the roots of her mental block. We've restored your childhood memories up to about age nine, Sasha continued. When you came to Westfall, you couldn't have been more than ten. That's a huge improvement over six months ago. Fiona suppressed a grimace. Getting her memories back had been a mixed blessing. Before, she had been able to imagine whatever past might have suited her. Her parents could be whoever she wanted them to be. She now knew that her mother had been an unlicensed prostitute, a latent teep so weak that she'd been able to service Mondays and Spookies alike. While she was grateful for some of the memories, her mother teaching her to read, or singing her to sleep, or taking her to the park on her rare days off, others were less welcome, like the repeated memories of hiding in the closet while mother entertained her clients. Worst of all, nothing that she remembered had been able to help Fiona actually find her mother. Was she dead? Had she given Fiona up to the hive for her own protection? Had she just abandoned her? No, I cannot believe that. She felt Sasha's hand on her shoulder. I don't believe that either, she said softly. She did everything she could to make a life for you. A mom like that doesn't just cut and run. Fiona looked up at her, a pang of longing clutching at her chest. To remember everything but the most important thing. She shook her head slightly. You're almost there, Sasha insisted. You're ready to unravel this, I can feel it. Come on, let's give it one more try. Fiona closed her eyes and nodded. Very well. She lay back on the hospital bed and listened as Sasha began to speak in a gentle, measured tone, using a combination of her voice and her powers to lull Fiona into a hypnotic state. Imagine the path of your life, stretching back deep into the woods of your past, Sasha said. Think about the markers you've put down on that path. Can you see the markers? Yes, Fiona said softly. Good. I want you to go back to the marker for your ninth birthday. Picture it in your mind. Can you see it? Yes. What happened on your ninth birthday? Fiona smiled faintly. We went to the beach. Who went to the beach with you? Sasha asked, though Fiona knew that she knew the answer. My mother. And what are you two doing? Fiona's smile grew a shade wider as the memory blossomed in her mind. We're walking down the beach and singing. Okay, very good. Now, I want you to keep holding on to your mother's hand and walk down the path with her as far as you can. Fiona relaxed and did as Sasha instructed, stepping out of the memory at the beach and continuing down the forest path in her mind. In her mind's eye, her body was still that of the nine-year-old girl from the beach, but she wasn't frightened. Her mother was with her. Soon the underbrush grew thick and the light grew dim. She couldn't see her mother beside her anymore, but she held tightly to the image of mother's hand in her own, the sound of mother's footsteps on the leaves behind her, the scent of mother's perfume in her nose. The path twisted, turned, ran through a snarl of bushes, and finally stopped at a fallen tree. The old oak tree's dead and tangled limbs stuck out in all directions, 
forming a maze of sharp and splintered wood. Fiona looked around and saw fragments of memories all around her, reflected in the leaves scattered by the fallen tree. She tried to go around it, but the brush was dense here and seemed impassable. I'm stuck, she said quietly. I don't know how to get past the tree. Sasha's voice appeared in her mind. Can you jump over the tree? It's too high. Can you move the tree? Fiona looked down at her tiny child body. It's too big to lift. Then you're going to have to go through it, Sasha said. If you can get past the branches, you'll be able to climb over the tree. Fiona looked up at the tangled mess of branches. I don't know how. At this, she felt a tug on her hand. Her mother's image stepped into view, faint and glowing in the dim light. She looked back at Fiona, her long red hair glistening like rubies from the light inside of her. She smiled encouragingly. Your mother knows the way, Sasha said. Follow her. Hold on to the memory of her. Let it guide you to the other things you've lost. Fiona looked at the tree, doubtful. Her mother squeezed her hand. It's all right, Fiona, her mother said. Her lilting Sathmoran accent was as warm and comforting as an old familiar blanket. Stay close to me, and nothing will harm you. Trust was not something that came easily to Fiona, but as she looked into her mother's dazzling green eyes, she knew that she was safe with her. She followed her into the maze of branches. It was slow and difficult going, and the broken ends of the branches stabbed at her as she passed through. Still, she held on to Mother's hand, following in her footsteps. They came to the trunk of the tree and began to climb. In one spot, it was too far to the next branch for Fiona's little body to reach it, but her mother reached down and lifted her up until she was crouched beside her at the top of the trunk. We're nearly there, pet. Follow me closely now. I'll catch you if you should fall. Fiona nodded, and she and mother went down together, using the larger branches as stepping stones to reach the ground. Twice her feet slipped on the moss-covered wood, but Mother grabbed her and held her close. In some distant part of her mind, Fiona knew that this was not her real mother, only a collection of feelings and memories, but she felt those slender arms around her, and they made her feel safe. After a moment, they continued their descent. Finding their way out of the thicket of branches seemed to be easier than finding their way in. Before long, Fiona stood with her mother on the far side of the barrier, Looking back from this angle, she could see the stump of the tree, far back in the woods. The top of the stump was smooth and straight, a sharp wedge at a 45-degree angle to the ground. The tree hadn't fallen. Someone had cut it down. Frightened, Fiona turned to continue up the path. Something bad had happened here. She did not want to linger. Her mother did not move. Fiona looked back, puzzled. "'Mother?' she asked, her voice sounding very small and vulnerable, even to her own ears. "'Aren't you coming?' Her mother smiled sadly. "'Love of my heart,' she said, opening her arms to Fiona. "'I'm sorry, but this is as far as I go.' 
Tentatively, Fiona came back to her. Her mother wrapped her in her arms again, and Fiona looked up at her questioningly. Mother brushed a lock of frizzy red hair out of Fiona's eyes. Would you know the truth? she asked gently. Would you see what was taken from you? What you have feared to remember for all these years? Fiona swallowed the lump in her throat, then nodded. Her mother gestured at the tree. For a moment, nothing happened. Then, slowly, with a great creaking of wood and the rustling of branches, the tree righted itself. Like a video recording being run backwards, it returned to its place atop the stump, gathering fallen branches and leaves as it came. The sharp slash through the trunk mended itself. Leaves turned from brown to green. Shed strips of bark found their places once more. How are you doing this? Fiona whispered in awe. I'm not doing this, pet, Mother said, her voice full of pride. You are. In less than a minute, the tree stood intact and healthy once again. In the place where it had fallen, the path of her memories was black and ugly, a rotten, festering patch of earth, overgrown with fungi and infested with wretched, crawling things. Mother went over to stand beside the patch, then turned and beckoned to Fiona. Come and see, Fiona. Fiona took a step back. It looks terrible. Her voice still sounded small. The truth is not always beautiful, Mother said. But as the good book says, it will set you free. She held out her hand. Walk with me, pet. One last time. Fiona took a deep breath. Summoning all her courage, she stepped forward and took her mother's hand. Together, they stepped through into the memory. And that's the end of Chapter 47. Come back next week when we learn the terrible secret of Fiona's past. L. L. Barkat said, Writing starts with living. So, let's see where life has taken me this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of October 2nd through October 8th. This week I continued working on my edits for Abigail Hilton's forthcoming novel, The Cormorant. After two weeks of work, I'm now 84% of the way through the book which at 189,000 words is a pretty hefty tome. For comparison, that's about the same length as making the cut. One way I've been able to make such rapid progress is that I've put a copy of the book in the Kindle app on my phone, so I can take it with me when I'm walking the dog or when I'm winding down at bedtime. I'm expecting that I'll finish my read-through this coming week, and then it might take me another week to get all of the notes transferred from my Kindle version to the Word document on my laptop. After that, I'll be able to go back to my own writing projects, which is something I'm really looking forward to after nearly a three-month break. Looking back at the month of September, I wrote a total of 4,914 words in six days, averaging 819 words per day. That ranks 67th out of 77 months since I started this show. 
I spent 6.25 hours writing in September. Compared to August, my word count increased by 11%, and my writing time increased by 9%. I also recorded and produced six complete episodes during September, and spent about 33.5 hours working on podcast production. So that was time well spent. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.